Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic, and with me, as always, is Aaron Cameron. We are recording an episode today in conjunction with the Canadian Real Estate Forums. The Toronto Real Estate Forum just completed, and our guest today did speak at it. It's Michael Turner, president of Oxford Properties Group. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Adam. We're going to jump into your forum appearance a little later on, but before we do, just to set the stage, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate, your background, and what led you to being where you are today? And for, just before you do that, Michael, just a reminder that Peter Sense does occasionally listen to these, so only say nice things about him. Well, Peter's birthday is coming up, so I'll wish him a happy birthday. The truth is, I got into the business because I needed a job, and it was the only place I could find one. So I grew up with a father who raised me who was an oil trader, and I always thought that I would be a commodities trader because he taught me to look at the table of prices of X, Y, and Z in the newspaper every day. And I always listened to him on the phone doing deals. And that's what I assumed my pathway would be. So I went to university in British Columbia. I finished a degree in economics at UBC and I didn't know what to do. And I was poor. And somebody said to me, well, why don't you go to grad school and learn about city planning? Remember that video game, Sim City? my friend said, it's kind of like that. You get to be like the Sim City person, but in real life. And being a naive but optimistic 20-something-year-old, I said, I'm going to do that. And I went to planning school and I quickly determined that I'd rather be the developer making the application than the municipal employee improving the application, approving it rather. So I dialed for opportunities. Like so many of us in the 1990s, it was a terrible time to come into the real estate business, but it was actually the best because you had to roll up your sleeves. There was little to no liquidity in the market. And it was some of the best teachings that I have when I entered the workforce. And at that time, it was with C.B. Richard Ellis in Toronto. Well, related to that, I started my career in brokerage as well. What was your big takeaway from CBRE? You know, They're one of the best in the business. What did you learn there? And why did you end up leaving? I learned too many lessons for us to just spend a few minutes on. I was there for 13 years. So I learned about markets. I learned about prospecting and originating. I learned about how to structure deals. I learned about how to get yelled at by my customers. Many, many lessons in a few cycles that I spent wonderful years out there, including with Peter. The reason I left is just because there was an opportunity. So at the time, it was the former CEO of Oxford, Blake Hutchison, had moved to Oxford, and he was looking for somebody to sort of lead the investment function of the business. And he called me up and said, you want to come over here? I knew and trusted Blake. I had 40 or 50 friends at Oxford. And so I wasn't interested in leaving CBRE. It just so happened that a pretty unique opportunity came. And I said, maybe I'll give it a shot. So that was a little over a decade, maybe 10 or 11 years ago that I made that decision. While you were at CBRE and you were structuring deals and working on the brokerage side, did you have a sense that you wanted to do something different? Or was it truly just coincidence that Blake had identified you as somebody that had the skill set to come in and manage on a different platform than what you were doing as a broker? No, I wasn't out actively looking for a new opportunity. And what made it different in terms of me considering it at the time was Oxford was one of my biggest clients. Like I said, Aaron, I knew 40 or 50 people there. You often don't understand an organization until you get into the inside. So it was a pretty good 
sense of visibility I had, even though I wasn't an employee. So it was a confluence of factors. And I said, why not? And off I went. This is a tough question. So I apologize because it's sometimes it's difficult for people to look inward on themselves. But what were the characteristics do you think that Blake would have recognized in you while you were a broker? Because you clearly weren't doing it outwardly saying, hey, look at me, I would be good for to work for you or whatever. You were just conducting yourself in your typical manner. And I'm thinking about some of our younger listeners that maybe, you know, working at brokerages now that have aspirations to grow their careers. What was it? I'll list a couple that are simple, hard work, transparency, honesty. Like what were the things that you think that really kind of made you attractive to reach out sort of proactively by Blake? Well, I I had a long relationship with him and I had worked with him directly on many things over the years. So it wasn't that he knew my name and he called me. We had a, a pretty solid relationship. So if there was some advice in there to people, Aaron, it's build relationships. They matter a lot. And I've never considered myself any different than anybody else other than maybe I was prepared to work harder. So that's the one thing we can all control. We can't control what our talents are. We can't control how smart we are or not, but we can all control our own commitment and our own effort. And I think like many of your listeners, I indexed pretty high on that. And that's probably the biggest contributor to what allowed for that opportunity at that time. Well, let's move forward a little bit because you are in a you know, very senior leadership position now. I'd love to hear your vision for the company. I know that you have your four priorities. I'd love to hear the explanation of how you came to those and how that drives the organization. I have the four priorities here in front of me, but I assume that you already already know them. <laughs> Why don't you just rhyme them off for our listeners? Okay. All right. Just remind, remind them. Yeah. Number, okay, number one, value and attract the best people. Number two, cultivate the company's global culture. Three, mind the shop floor to be great today and tomorrow. Four, go to 4.0 by seeking bold ways of working and doing. Okay, well, you've expanded on those. So you've done your homework because I used to always just say value and attract the best, mind the shop floor, cultivate the culture and go to 4.0. So when you take over an opportunity, you have to articulate where are we going and what are we going to do? And when 2,200 employees look at you from uh, different vantages around the world and they say, Adam, where are we going and what are we going to do? You need to be able to express a fairly compelling narrative. So if I'm honest, the first thing that I did when I assumed the role of leadership of the business is as I did what's called what I called a listening tour, I got on an airplane. I was pretty familiar with all of our offices. I'd spent a big portion of my career at Oxford, but I went out to see people and listen to people. And in my tours and to sit down and listen to our leaders and talk to our folks around the world, this is what I articulated to them. And I came up with it in conversations with my colleagues and literally on airplanes and on a napkin. So I said, this is what we're going to do just to get us going. And I think that they're clear enough that people could understand the direction of travel. And they were also general enough that we were going to fill in the blanks of what did that mean later. So yes, real estate is about bricks and mortar and four walls and a roof, but it's only people that make these things happen. It's only people that are creative. It's people that have drive and determination. So I think value and attract the best is something that I've seen in winning sports teams, in business, in just having fun. You have the best people around you. I think some extraordinary things can come from that. So that was the number one priority. It remains the number one priority. 
cultivate the culture. I had an opportunity a few years ago to meet a wonderful coach, a gentleman named Clive Woodward, and he was the coach of Team Great Britain's rugby team and took them from being the laughing stock to the world champions. And he later went on to coach Team Great Britain in the 2010 Olympics. And he shared with me in conversations around transforming his team, what kind of a culture did he build? And what kind of a culture did he want to build from going from the bad news bears, if you will, to the champions? And I think all of us would agree that culture is a really important part of any organization. I've always felt that if the culture of an organization doesn't align with my own values and my own priorities, I'm just not going to work there. So that's a pretty generic one, Adam, but it's also fairly intentional that how you do what you do matters as much as what you do. Mind the shop floor. So I spent years of my career at Oxford in operational roles and had the joys of unplugging toilets and going into elevator pits and dealing with people that do unthoughtful things at construction sites and CEOs of your occupiers who get trapped in elevators and so on and so forth. So the discipline of spending years in operations gave me an enormous appreciation for pay attention to the details and you look after today what matters so that tomorrow you can do extraordinary things and grow your business. And go to 4.0 is just a view that I've always had. And I think COVID has clearly rattled any potential naysayers. Every business model that we have seen is going to be disrupted. Whatever it is you believe you're doing well, somebody else is trying to figure out a way to do it better or to actually make it irrelevant by coming up with a completely new idea. So this was my challenge to our folks of, there must be a better way. Let's go to 4.0. So that's it. It was no more thoughtful than a few napkins on some airplanes going around and doing listening tours and trying to come up with some narrative that was generic enough that people could see a direction of travel and specific enough that they could start filling in the blanks with what did that mean? What were the programs and processes and priorities we were going to put in place to make those four themes come to life? And so, Michael, can you just put a time frame? When was it that you took over your current roles? What year was this that that listening tour occurred? Yeah, I assumed the leadership of Oxford in February of 2018. Okay. Okay. So, so a year, two years prior to the current pandemic, where let's date stamp it. It's December 11th. Just for those listening, maybe later in the in the in the week or the month. So you you established that early on in your leadership role. How has it served you? Maybe just. Talk about what your experience has been now, start from March, February, March, with your offices around the world, 2,200 employees all of a sudden dislocated, working from home, and have those four staples or, you know, (laughs) I guess, sort of culture guidance. How has that helped? What's the impact been for you for COVID? Yeah, so I haven't asked myself the question in the way that you just framed it, Aaron. So have those four pillars helped us through COVID? The answer is absolutely. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I hired and was fortunate and humbled to attract a new chief operations officer about a year and a half ago. And just in the last couple of months, we were able to transition the remaining pieces of changing a generation of leaders and our leadership team. So I've got a new head of Asia PAC and a new head of Europe. So let's start with the value and attract the best. 
like surrounding yourself by a really strong leadership team has been critical for me in COVID. I think many of us have found this the most stressful periods in our career. And I've shared with people, there's no playbook for this. And without having that great team, I would have been in a world of hurt. So I'm going to tick the box there. You're never done. You always have to look after great people and always attract more, but that certainly helped. Cultivate the culture. So something that we all relied on in getting through this period is people who can lead, people who can make decisions, people who can tackle problems. Eight or nine years ago, after the global financial crisis, I had an opportunity to meet, I think his name's Michael Kelly. He was the CEO of Bank New York Mellon, and he was many CFOs ago, formerly the CFO of TD Bank, and was the youngest CFO ever at TD. And he was in the room with Bernanke and Paulson and all of the major Wall Street banks that weekend, we all recall 10 years ago when we thought the world was going to end. And one of the things he shared with me was that there was such an enormous volume of crises coming at him. He had to come up with 10 rules for managing a crisis. And one of the rules he came up with is he read me the list. He said, Aaron, I'm going to assess in the first 10 seconds of you speaking if what it is you have to share is an existential threat to the whole company or not, because that's all I can deal with. And if you don't have enough to compel me, this is what his brain was saying, that you are a threat to the entire organization. If I don't assess that in 10 seconds, I'm going to tell you, Aaron, you're on your own. Figure it out. You're a leader. So I didn't replay that to my own team. But I do recall in the worst of the crisis, I wrote down, because I kept a journal, that there were 22 crises I had that day. So if I had 22 that I dealt with, that means that across the organization, I don't know, was there 2,000, 10,200, some extraordinary number. So to have a culture of doers and people who took on and bore the burden and the weight of that, yeah, I'm going to say that that contributed to us getting through this. Mind the shop floor. So March 13th, the WHO declared a global pandemic. We were starting to go into lockdown in New York City here a little bit before that. And I remember calling my CEO, Dean, and I said, I know we have emergency preparedness plans. Do we have emergency preparedness plans for all 400 properties? And does it include pandemics? (laughs) I said, I don't know. So he went and he ascertained, yep, we have emergency preparedness plans for all of them. It does include pandemics and we're going to have some gaps. So he put his head down with his team for a week to make sure that we were ready for the onslaught of turbulence that was coming at us. And we just didn't quite know it at that time. So that goes to a good example of mind the shop floor. Like if we didn't have an organization that wasn't paying attention to those details before, it would have been even more chaotic than it was. And the last one of go to 4.0, I remember late in March, governments were coming up with new edicts around the world by the day. And we said, this is insane. We have to figure out, does this mean something to us? Is this going to hurt us or help us? And then how do we operationalize it? So we had to stand up a whole bunch of infrastructure in the cloud in a matter of 
five or six days to be able to operationalize what quickly went from no new edicts to 86 edicts to be able to manage a global business through a pandemic. So without having the talent and the people and the mindset of go to 4.0, we wouldn't have been able to manage COVID with carrier pigeons and sending pieces of post in the mail and clip files and the way we used to do things. So that's not to say those four pillars helped everything through COVID, but I can see on the spot, you asked me on the spot, I was able to give you a real example in each case. I'm going to give myself a tech mark, a check, <laughs> check mark. Did, did we have four pretty good pillars and have they served us well in a crisis? Not bad. Give it a few plus. I think you navigated that beautifully for uh, being put on the spot by Aaron. On the same theme of heading into the pandemic with very little, little warning, it was explained to me by somebody, and this made sense. I'd love to hear your view on it because you have a very scattered organization. You have offices all over. Large organizations like yourself that have a very global presence already are used to operating in an environment where everybody's not on the same floor of an office building and operating in that fashion. That you're already equipped to deal with being separate by continuing on leadership. Does that help that you already had a large global infrastructure where you were not in the same office as a lot of these people for the majority of the year? I mean, we wouldn't be able to have a distributed organization in one office. So I'm not sure. What really helped us most, Aaron, is having great leaders, having strong leaders in New York and Toronto and Vancouver and Boston and Berlin. And by definition, they all live in different cities, and so they're in different offices. So I'm not sure if that's helpful to you or not, but great people in different chairs is really how we got through it. Moving away from COVID, maybe let's talk a little bit about investment. Let's move away from COVID. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. Yeah, that's enough. As fast as we can. That's enough, yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about investment philosophy. Maybe, and I don't know if this is a good question or not, I hope it is. As you kind of took over the leadership role, what the existing investment philosophy was, if you've just maintained that, tweaked it, or if there's been a major shift in the way that you're steering the investments going forward. And as a caveat, has COVID had any impact on your philosophy? Sure. Maybe I'll mostly focus on my investment philosophy as opposed to is it different or the same at other times or in other places. So scale has an impact on, in my view, any way that you think about investing. If I was fortunate to have a little bit of personal wealth and I lived in Toronto, then I would think about investing in real estate differently than having the responsibility of of investing and managing risk for a large institution that wants to be globally diversified, et cetera. So I'm going to talk about how do you manage that set of circumstances with a large institution. I'm a bit of a data junkie, and I've paid attention over the years to how I think you have a higher probability of making money in real estate than not. And then I sort of debate these ideas with people, and then we go back and we test the numbers. And the nice thing is that over the last 50 years, real estate data has gotten better and better and better. And what the evidence would show is that capital allocation for an institution like myself, as in where do you put your money? Toronto offices is a pretty big capital allocation decision that matters a lot more than should I own 200 Bay Street or should I own 20 Bay? 60% of your return outcome, maybe 80% of your return outcome is already determined by should I buy Toronto offices? It's the same as if how you perform if you're buying in stocks 
I'm going to buy Canadian banks is a much more important decision than I'm going to buy Royal Bank or TD Bank. So capital allocation is a huge priority for us. And we do look at it thematically. We have observed a couple of trends that have served us well in the past. So a trend that we bet on in the past, just like a Toronto story, would be immigration into key gateway cities and the creative class and technology driving a greater consumption of offices. So that was a huge bet for us post-2010, and it worked out pretty well. In the last few years, we've shifted our priorities to things like the warehouse sector, which is a little less than a third of the Oxford balance sheet now. And a few years ago, it was pretty small. Asia Pacific is a huge region in the world's economy and much faster growing than the West. And so we've shifted about 16% of our balance sheet to Asia PAC. Two and a half years ago, it was zero. So betting on themes is a pretty important thing for us. And then we enable really great originators that have terrific relationships and know that 20 Bay is better than 200 Bay or vice versa. They bring us flow and we set the guardrails as to what is down the fairway look like, what is in the rough and what is out of bounds and try to give people toolbox and skills so that they can compete and move fast within a set of parameters. Well, on the topic of capital allocation at a, at a high level, a return obviously is a very large part of what you do, but there's also investment for safety, investment for hedge. Where are you seeing the opportunities for, for return, but then also for the other considerations you have when you're allocating your capital? Well, so right now our priorities, and they have been for a couple of years, and we like to dumb things down so that people can really uh, simplify them and understand them. So we say sheds for warehouses, beds for multifamily, creds. We have a great credit business, which is one of my favorites. Meds. What are meds? Life sciences sector. We've been investing in that sector for about four years. And somebody else came up with this acronym. They said REDS, real estate and data. So data centers. Sheds, beds, creds, meds, REDS. That is where our capital is being prioritized thematically. And then of course, you got to articulate a plan as to how are you going to get that money to work? What kind of operating platforms are you going to build or partner with? What kind of asset management skills do you need to create more value in addition to the capital allocation process, et cetera, et cetera. So the life sciences sector is one that we started to invest in about four years ago. We were a MES lender when Blackstone privatized Biomed which is a life sciences specialist company that they just recapitalized this fall. It's been an amazing success for them, and they've published that in their most recent results. And what's really unique about the sector is that it benefits from something that's a headwind in most other parts of real estate, which is an aging population. So an aging population attracts capital or medical innovations and innovation in medical science. The confluence of computer technology with cellular therapy, gene therapy, biologics, all kinds of stuff that most of us never heard about. And now we're all learning about because of COVID. And it's been an amazing sector. And I think it's going to continue to be a winner for the next 20 to 30 years. We're going to see big tailwinds. So that's one of our favorite investment themes as an example. So Michael, you 
had mentioned earlier on as we were kind of transitioning into your know, investment thesis, strategy, philosophy, just about scale. When Adam and I have had the opportunity to interview individuals in similar positions where it is about large sums, it's tough, to, as you had indicated, diversifying into what you called Asia Pack and sort of transitioning your portfolio to sheds, beds, creds, meds, and reds. How are you finding that scale to do it? I mean, it's really tough to do it on asset by asset base, or do you kind of diversify and do both by assets and mergers and acquisitions? What's the strategy? Yeah, it's you're 100% right, Aaron. I think for a lot of institutions, they tend to be in general over allocated to offices because they were easy to get capital out in large blocks. New York City is an example. There has to be hundreds of buildings that are a million square feet. Like, there's 330 million square feet of office space in this market and the capital values per foot are quite high. So you can get out several billion dollars, no problem in New York City if you want to do it in a month. It wouldn't be difficult. If you want to replicate that in warehouses that are 100,000 square feet at a time, that's very different. So our chosen path of travel, Oxford's an operator. It's a 60-year-old company and we have a preference to build operating businesses at scale. And we've done it a variety of ways. We have bought them in the past. So we own a company with our partners at Ivanhoe Cambridge called IDI, which is a warehouse specialist developer based in Atlanta. And we bought a large portfolio that came with a team. And so that's a very efficient way to deploy capital. We have bought other asset managers. So in Australia, two years ago, we bought a listed portfolio of offices called IOF. And then we later this year completed a transaction to buy the manager called Investa. So again, we bought a team. In other cases, we're building a multifamily specialist in London called Get Living. Have to do it from the ground up. So hiring people, putting a CEO in place, putting a team in place, giving them capital and building out their portfolio and their capability. Lots of different ways to do this. They're not all the same, but in general, we have a high degree of preference to build winning operating platforms at scale that we either run ourselves or we own and have a management team that runs them. And it's through those vehicles that we're able to manage risk and get our capital out the door. I want to ask you about a specific investment, Michael. I'll just do the background for our listeners. Oxford purchased a handful of Fairmont hotels bunch of high-profile Fairmont hotels. Then the strategy was to sell the non-core Fairmonts, and the resulting four are all flagship hotels located beside world-class skiing. I also know you're a skier. Is that a coincidence, or is there a strategy there for uh, ensuring you had a nice place to sleep for a Christmas vacation? Yeah, nice question. (laughs) I'm afraid I wasn't around when Oxford purchased the hotels. We did recently recapitalize them. So we actually just sold a 75% interest that closed on April 1st to another institution based out of Asia, who's a great partner of ours. So I wasn't at Oxford at the time of the original purchase. And I was at Oxford when we said, things are going really well. Let's take some chips off the table and recapitalize them. Of course, we had no idea that we would come into a pandemic. That was just how things played out. Those hotels actually... So I'm right across the street from the Four Seasons Hotel in New York. It's boarded up. There's literally plywood all on the front of it. Our hotels shut down by government mandate for a portion of the late spring, early summer. First time those hotels have ever closed. 
They didn't close in the Depression. They didn't close in World War II. So we had to close them for a period of time. We reopened them in the summer. And I actually took my own family out to Jasper, Banff, and Lake Louise. And we were seeing about 45 to 50% occupancy, depending on the hotel. I compare that to our city center-owned hotels, where occupancy has been 1% to 3%. So, Aaron, Adam, we weren't betting on skiing. What we were betting on was the outdoors. We were betting on lifestyle preference that people wanted to embrace the environment, that there is a emerging traveler from both Canada, the US, Europe, and Asia that has money and a baby boomer who wants to put that part of the world on their bucket list. And those hotels actually have their best performance in the summer, not during ski season. So they've obviously had a pretty tough ride during COVID. And I think they're going to come back just as they perform better than our city center assets. They're going to come back faster than our city center assets. Of course, until we get vertical lift, there's only so much business they can do with local drive-in traffic. I actually didn't realize that transaction was done so long ago that you weren't part of the organization at the time. So I would ask you, because Oxford has a lot of really high-profile signature developments under their belt. So you're, you're almost three years in now. Do you have an idea of what the signature development will be for your time as president of Oxford? Do you see that coming out of the woodwork yet? Or what's your thoughts on the ones that people talk about globally, you know, the Hudson Yards of the world? What's your thoughts on on your legacy, even though you are obviously very new to the role, but what's your legacy, you think, from a development standpoint? Well, the hotels you referenced, I think, were purchased by Oxford in 2004, I believe. So I didn't join the organization until 2010, early 2010. We've put up a lot of buildings since I joined the company in the last cycle. Our sort of marquee early project was 122 Leaden Hall in London in the local press there called it the cheese grater. And we decided to build a building there before even we had construction financing because we just saw London coming back and growing in a complete void of new office product. And we said, we're going to build this thing and nothing else is going to be competing. And it turned out to be a spectacular project. Hudson Yards, you mentioned, was a decision, again, that was made in 2010, but it takes a decade. So I'm not going to talk about any of these projects that either exist now or in the future as really my legacy, because I think they're the legacy of the great people that work at Oxford. I would have the least to do with them in terms of really adding any value. And some of the things that you would not see that are not going vertical today, we've been planting those seeds for a long time. So we own the Intercontinental. We own the north part of the Toronto Convention Center and an entire two contiguous blocks from Simcoe Street all the way to Blue Jay Way. That's a 13-acre development site. One day, it's going to be a spectacular project. But I've learned, and I wouldn't have appreciated it unless I've been working on these things for many cycles in the past, that like some of these projects take 20 years. It's a long time. And you drive by them and you say, why isn't Adam doing anything with that site? Which is just not the case. The amount of public engagements and consultation with community members and stakeholders and government and running design and pro formas and trying to enable the enabling works always take more effort than going vertical. So we're quietly laying the seeds for the next 
generation of projects, just as people did before me and, and we will continue to do today and into the future. I've said it before on this podcast, but I don't know how developers have the patience for these timelines, but my hat's off to them. Just shifting gears a little bit, you're active on LinkedIn and you're also active on YouTube with the Oxford videos that you do for anybody that hasn't seen them. It is typically Michael in a downtown setting, commenting on the company, commenting developments. It's pretty engaging stuff and really adds a lot of personal touch to what could otherwise be a large institution. So I'd love to hear your view on social media in a business context specifically, not just uh, you know everybody posting photos of their dinners, but you're using it for a business context. So I'd love to know how substantial is it in the business environment? Do you plan on ramping up your activity in it? I mean, obviously you appear in podcasts, so that's a good step too, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it might be um, to the dismay of my wonderful marketing and comms team. I don't think I'm going to be trying to launch a career in social media anytime. When I went on my listening tour, as I was sharing earlier in the podcast, it just dawned upon me that it's a 19-hour time zone change from the West Coast of the Americas to the East Coast of Australia. And that's a large body of people to try to communicate with and touch. And so I asked them, what's a way for us to communicate and stay in touch with people? And it can't cost more than a dollar per exchange of messaging. And they sent me some weird looking stick and said, film this. So we just tried it. And I was uncomfortable with it. Eventually, I kind of just had fun with it. And I don't really care if I feel awkward on the street. I just sort of move forward. And my marketing team does an amazing job laying out, here's the messages we want to get out. It used to be I traveled. Here's Michael's travel. So we'll plan for him to share these messages in these places and at these times. And we call it the Oxford Monthly. And it's just become a nice way for me to communicate what it is we're working on or something that's neat that's happening in a city or a market or for us to show appreciation to either our colleagues, a customer, a supplier, whomever. So not much more than that, Adam. was just It was born out of a need for practicality, if I'm honest, as opposed to you know, dancing with the CEO's social media version. (laughs) I would say yes, definitely less than a dollar per delivery, which is great. And when I was watching it, I was thinking there's a bunch of strangers kind of looking at you on the street and I give you, you know, kudos for keeping a very calm demeanor while there's people bustling by in downtown New York. So it's well done. One more question before we uh, wrap here. You recently appeared at the Toronto Real Estate Forum, which occurred virtually, of course, because of, of COVID. Did you have any big takeaways from your panel or any other panels that you might have seen? I think everyone is in agreement. 2020 is the year to forget. <laughs> Unfortunately, 2021 is going to start much like 2020 ends. In all seriousness, something that I shared and picked up on and believe. So when this pandemic first started, I used LinkedIn and I wrote a a note to my employees and to others talking about this was the time to pay attention to everything. That if you paid attention to everything right now, you're going to learn more about yourself as a brother, sister, mother, father, business leader, more about your business, your colleagues than perhaps at any other time in our lives. I didn't appreciate that such an introspective period would also be such a painful one, but those are great teachable 
moments. And a takeaway I would have is for all of us that have gone through this experience and for those of us who are leaders, our employees are more valuable to us with the benefit of COVID. My father were alive still. He'd probably call it a gift. I struggle with that. But there is a gift here in terms of personal learnings and a personal journey. And you learn a lot in adversity. This has been a real adverse time period for all of us personally and professionally. So that would be a takeaway that I shared with people. And I think others similarly felt the same from uh, discussions at the forum this year. Yeah, there certainly seemed to be a turning of optimism throughout the forum. And if, and if there are silver linings, there are lots of them, as you say, but one of them will be hopefully you continue your video communications once we're all back to normal and it's just something that sticks because it's, it's appreciated and, and hopefully you, you understand the, the value it gives to all your staff across those 19 hours of, of time frames. Listen, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Really appreciate the conversation. A reminder to our listeners that Adam and I are going to digest the conversation in our uh, commercial real estate podcast after show. But again, Michael, really appreciated the conversation. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Adam. It was fun to have a little chit chat. And hopefully in a year's time or two years time, we can long forget about COVID and talk about something different in the real estate world. I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Michael. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the guest and everything they said. Michael Turner was great, is super high level of view. I always appreciate the real estate people that have that kind of 60,000 square foot global view, just a way real estate that we don't do. We think of it nationally, maybe think about the US a little bit, and that's kind of where any sort of attention or spotlight from us disappears. But his closing thought there about the panel, about 2021 entering the way 2020 is exiting. It reminded me of uh, Michael Cooper's quote, which I just loved at the forum. It just boils the whole concept down to, if we have a boring 2021, we're going to have a good year. You're like, yeah, that's about right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't need big headlines. I don't need uh, excitement. Just a boring 2021 sounds about right. (laughs) So interesting. The way he was describing, and we've had multiple guests that think this way, but similar to you, it, it It was shocking or not shocking, but I guess interesting the way that he says, like, I'm not worried about which office building in Toronto. If I like office Toronto, then that's an investment I'll make. And you just imagine somebody sitting in his seat. He's trying to make it relatable to listeners of a Canadian commercial real estate podcast. But he would be thinking the same way about, well, if I like retail in Sydney, I'm investing retail in Sydney. If I like office or industrial in Shanghai, I'm doing industrial and just imagine the ability to, that's the decision-making weight, right? That's how, and I'm sure it's way more, and he talked about being a data geek and he's got schematics for everything. So clearly there's a lot more that goes into it. But I think when you're the decision-maker and you got to be able to sleep at night and be comfortable with your decisions, you almost have to break it down to that level, that simple level to just be like, no, no, ultimately office Toronto, good investment. Don't worry about the rest of it because that simplified level of thought process is sound. So it's really fascinating to me. Well, he even mentioned too, the uh, sheds, beds, creds, meds, reds as a way of just simplifying their entire investment thesis. I mean, it's amazing to think of the number of MBAs and CFAs and all these bright people all together. Like we can just still this to a rhyming 
<laughs> seven or Five. six items came into yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of funny. And I mean, we're, we're now belittling it because I'm sure it's not that simple, but you just, you imagine someone being like, hey, I want to spend a billion dollars on this. And he's like, well, yeah, that's in bed. Sorry, let's do that. Right. That fits. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Check, right? Like, <laughs> well, on the theme of talent as well and bright people, he did mention a couple of times keeping and attracting talent and making sure that they're engaged and happy at their jobs. And that's going to be integral for a group running a, I think it's a, I read $60 billion book. Uh, maybe I'm wrong in that number, but yeah, I mean, you're, you have majorly impactful decisions and you want those bright people. But I will also point out, Aaron, as I pointed out in other podcasts, a sports analogy did enter the mix again, that uh, it's the same for sports teams paying for talent to win world championships. You know, it's uh, another sports analogy. So for people that don't yeah. bring that to us, it's been talked about before in the podcast that sports analogies proliferate real estate. And so I wanted to, take a sidebar to point that one out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be the leader. It must be overwhelming at times when you think about it, or particularly when you're starting. He's been in for a couple of years, so maybe he's more comfortable. But yeah, that first day on the job where you got to think, okay, I am now the leader of 2,200 people in I don't know how many offices globally. Like, how do you manage a culture? How do you ensure that people are thinking the same way? And maybe it is by breaking things down into a rhyming five words, right? And that's the only way that you can convey your messaging. I guess it's doing videos and just sending them out worldwide. But at first, and I guess he did that listening tour, maybe it's during that listening tour that, that you have to wrap your head around, how am I ever possibly going to communicate my vision, be a leader for all of these people in so many different places with so many different backgrounds and histories and it must be daunting, but clearly he's the right man for it because he seems to be cool and collected at all times, doesn't he? And I can answer your question when you said how many offices are 69 global offices. That seems like a lot of balls to keep in the air. I mean, it definitely takes a certain personality type to be able to handle that. The other thing that I wanted to bring up that he talked about, and we have talked about this other podcast too, is the development cycle. He referenced 20 years because if you're talking about putting up 30,000 square foot industrial building or you're trying to build 100 units... Your development cycle is probably five years. You're doing a, or sorry, less than that. You're probably three, four years doing a larger project. You're pushing into seven, eight years. But when you're talking about the Hudson Yards of the world, yeah, that's that's 20 years. In your career, you might only see a few of those elapse where you see them start to finish in your entire span. It's it's amazing to think about. And as I said in the podcast, I don't know how people have patience to spend six years in entitlement. One and the other thing is that he's likely not going to be around to see any of the stuff that he's doing completed, right? If he's setting the groundwork for a twenty-year development horizon on whatever it is, he's just laying the groundwork for someone else to take over at some point and complete it. So you don't even get that satisfaction of look what I've done. It's kind of like I guess I'm doing this for the purposes of the investors, but not necessarily for any sort of personal satisfaction. I'm sure Blake Hutchison, who was the previous leader in that role. I don't think he was around when Hudson Yards completed, but he, I'm sure he takes pride in knowing that he started and had the vision to get it going. So there's some solace there. Because, yeah, you would be finishing projects you're not a part of. He, means, he specifically mentioned the Fairmont purchase of 2004, which predates his time. But just recently, they made a decision to sell a, a good chunk of that. And so you're making investment decisions around a project that started when you had no concept or no inputs, no, uh, no decision-making. It's yeah. Those, those kind of time horizons are, are very interesting. And of course with any sort of pension fund money, yeah, your time horizons can be 50 years. Like you're sitting in a room with a bunch of people making decisions that you're talking about the year 2070. It's, it's yeah, very, very yeah. different. Well, 
I had not thought of this before, but it now makes sense. And I can't think of specific examples, but Oxford clearly is one where the current leader actually selects their predecessor or vice versa, right? So like Blake clearly went out and identified Michael as the person he wanted to take over when Blake moved on. And I've heard that, and I just can't think of the specific examples where that's occurred in other major investment companies. And that would make sense is you want to make sure you bring somebody in that has a philosophical belief system and investment thesis that mirrors or is similar to yours. So there aren't these giant pivots and shifts as leaders transition over the years. So that if something that Blake had set up and started working on, Michael comes in, has a similar belief system or investment thesis, and we'll just continue it along rather than just pulling the ripcord and yeah, we're going to be hospitality 100% now and sells everything. And all of a sudden, it's a completely different company, right? I guess that's, I'd not put two and two together, but that would make perfect sense why that's why those leaders, those presidents and CEOs are responsible for finding their replacement before they move on to greener pastures, so to speak. To line up with those timelines. Yeah, I know that does make sense. And yeah, trying to try to move, make a major investment thesis shift on an organization like that. It's the analogy of you know, trying to turn an oil tanker around it's going to take a long time. And you even addressed that in one part of the podcast when you talked about, yeah, like how do you reweight when you're talking about billions of dollars? You'd be selling 15 properties just to reweight your portfolio. That's significant. Well, we, we kind of didn't get into it and move past, but you mentioned that like their investment in Asia Pacific went from zero to 18% very quickly. Like, What did you have to buy to go from zero to 18% of $60 billion? Right? Like, that's, not, that's not easy. That's a lot of capital. To deploy very, very quickly, right? Anyway, thanks for our listeners joining us. Hopefully you enjoyed that podcast. As always, thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to the Commercial Real Estate Forums for the partnership. And until next time, see you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.